When I was younger, I had a, uh, a pastor, actually it was in college, who made a study of identifying a theme in every book of the Bible. His goal was not just to name the main topic. Instead, he wanted to identify how Christ specifically was uniquely revealed in each book. Now, this kind of approach is well known when it comes to the Gospels, right? Um, In Matthew, Jesus is the promised Messiah. In Mark, he's the suffering servant. In Luke, he's the son of man, savior to all. In John, he's the son of the father. You've maybe heard these distinctions before. The point, of course, is not to oversimplify the richness of each story as it's told, but to see the purpose in the diverse tellings of that story. And the same can be done for the rest of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, I think. I would encourage you to do it. I would challenge you to do it. Read a book and ask yourself, how does this reveal Christ in a unique way? What does this story or letter or prophecy emphasize about God, especially in the way that it points to the person and work of Jesus? And if you can, try to distill it down to a word or a phrase, maybe. Not because you have to, not because it's our responsibility to, but to make it memorable. Such things can become a hook to hang our ideas on, I think. In turn, helping us to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. You could begin something like this. In Genesis, Christ is the creative word. He's the son of promise. In Exodus, Christ is the deliverer. He's also the sacrificial lamb. He's also bread from heaven. But I wonder what you would come up with for the book of Colossians. I hope this isn't a spoiler, but I'm going to tell you what word comes to my mind, and I'm going to try to convince you to agree with me, I think. Um, So giving you just a moment, the word that comes to my mind with the book of Colossians is fullness. Let's see. As he begins, Paul prays, as we just read at the beginning, for the Colossians to be filled with knowledge. Filled with knowledge. Then twice, Paul says that Christ is the fullness of God, the fullness of deity. The first time in chapter one, it's in the middle of one of the most profound extended statements on the identity of Christ in the entirety of scriptures. Christ's fullness is the root of our understanding of his supremacy over all things. As creator and sustainer, he is fully God. But also his absolute sufficiency for us as the reconciler of all things. The second time Paul says that Christ is the fullness of God, which is in chapter 2, he goes on to tell the Colossians, that they too have been filled in Christ. This is the context of Paul's warning that they would be deceived away from the gospel. The idea seems to be that if you have Christ, you are already filled, already satisfied, already at peace. Therefore, you don't need to go looking anywhere else. It doesn't make sense. And the logic of the the rest of the letter seems to continue like that. If you've been filled in Christ, your mind and heart should be filled with things above, not things on earth. Things above, where Christ is, the one who fills you. If you've been filled in Christ, he is your life. And so your life should display Christ-like things. And if you're full in him, There's no room for earthly things, for earthly passions. I tell you all this, well, for one, as a sort of review of some of the big things in the book of Colossians, um, as we bring our study to a close, 
But also, I tell you to, to help us make sense of today's passage. In short, what I realized as I was thinking about Colossians as a book of fullness is that it's the nature of fullness to overflow. In an attempt to answer the question, why did God create the universe? And in order to challenge the idea that God must have been lacking something in order for him to be motivated to create, American theologian Jonathan Edwards says, it is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. Our God is full to overflowing. And if we have been filled, it is so that we too will overflow. So with that in mind, stand with me as we read Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Starting in verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Please be seated. Now, I'd like to invite you to take a moment now to to sort of immediately respond to this passage by praying for me that I would present these verses clearly. And at the same time as you are praying silently, I will silently pray for you. Let's pray together. Yes, Lord, hear these prayers of my brothers and sisters, and may you fill us to overflow this morning. In Jesus' name. Thank you. You may remember that the Colossian church did not receive the gospel directly from Paul. We talked about this just a couple years ago. Um, But they heard, in fact, from a man named Epaphras, who heard the message, as we said at the beginning. He walked what he believed, and he passed on what he received. You see, this letter is a letter about passing on the gospel. Or we could say it's about gospel fullness overflowing in gospel witness. Man, that would have been a good title. (laughs) Too late. Paul's mission delivered the gospel to Epaphras. And Epaphras believed and was filled up and overflowed onto his community, which happened to be the Colossians. Now, those who have received the same gospel believed it. Those who have been filled in Christ, now it's time for them to spill over, passing on the same gospel that they received. These verses show that the church must have an outward focus, not merely an outward focus, but necessarily an outward focus. Why? Because it's in the nature of the fullness of Christ to overflow. Just as it is the nature of Christ in his divine fullness to overflow, it should be our nature filled with Christ to overflow. And so if the gospel affects everything, and it does, Praying and walking and talking are three ways that we express our faith. Three ways a mind set on things above 
and a life filled with Christ-likeness bursts out of our bellies. And if that image doesn't work for you, take it up with Jesus. Whoever believes in me, he says, as the, scriptures, as the scripture has said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. You could say, looking back at chapter 3, that we've already seen something of this overflowing. And you'd be right. Paul has already written about how our faith calls our minds to think differently so that we will walk in holiness, will overflow in holiness. And humility, that's a unique kind of overflowing. And truth and love. But there's still a key piece missing as we come to the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. Consider how the focus of chapter 3 moves from what we could say is an upward focus, setting our minds on things above, to an inward focus, the changing of our appetites and motivations. And even when Paul turns to relationships, we could, we could still call that sort of an each-other focus, an in-house focus. Those relationships are among the family of faith, or literally in the same household, as we talked about last time. Only now does Paul truly turn the focus outward. He names outsiders. He's talking about the world. And notice how intentional it is. Paul sees the foundation of the mission of the church arising from Christ-centered minds and hearts, worked out in Christ-centered relationships, and finally overflowing in the gospel to the world. And so how does Paul lay out this outward focus? Where does he start? Well, perhaps unexpectedly, he begins with prayer. Namely, that we should pray with thanksgiving. Listen again to Colossians 4.2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul began his letter with prayer, as he does most letters, and now he returns to prayer at the end by calling the Colossians to pray. Everything in between, all of the warnings and teachings and instructions of the letter get sort of uploaded into this simple command to pray. What I mean is, that prayer mentioned here has the same upward and inward and outward aspects that Paul has applied to the Christian life as a whole. If you want to have a gospel focus in your walk in the world, it begins by praying about it. In this brief and challenging verse, Paul has three interrelated aspects of prayer life that he addresses. First, he says that we must be devoted to prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says. Now, I don't suppose you would be surprised to hear that this is a theme of Paul's, to have a faithful commitment to prayer, and it's described and commanded all over the New Testament. Let me highlight just a few. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Ephesians 6, 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Philippians 4 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Sounds familiar. Let your requests be made known to God. And of course, 1 Thessalonians 5 17. Pray without ceasing. Yeah, it's kind of a recurring theme. We could ask, what does Paul mean still? How do we remain this devoted? How do we remain steadfast? How do we remain constant, unceasing in prayer? Well, let me offer some encouragement. First, recognize that your conversation with God does not end when you say amen and open your eyes. Your walking and your speaking, which are on Paul's mind here, 
that is how you live out your faith in your life, represent what I would call your continued conversation with God. Yes, prayer is a conversation with God, but I hope we know that it doesn't mean God stops speaking if we are not in a conscious state of prayerful meditation with our hands folded and our eyes closed. The word of God is abiding in us. That means at least that you don't need to be literally reading the Bible for the word of God to influence your life. It's supposed to influence you as you walk away. So the father is always speaking to his children. Likewise, we who are his children should be aware that we are constantly responding to the father, either directly or indirectly. Consequently, every challenge to our faith, every temptation, is another opportunity to be devoted to prayer. Every selfish desire, every image, every impulse towards anger or revenge or attention-seeking is another chance for you to say in action and attitude as well as words, Lord, I love you more than this. Now, I don't want to overstate my case here. The point is not that we can do away with spoken prayers and just live in conscious of the presence of God. Emphasis must land that actual spoken prayer should be a defining characteristic of your Christian life. In fact, I would say it's because of our devotion to prayer, spoken, verbal, prayer, conversation, literally with God, that we develop a more sensitive awareness of God when we're not praying. And it's because I speak with God that I learn to recognize his voice. My Christian walk is not merely a display of moral principles and good conduct, but a display of my personal knowledge of God. I once had a spiritual mentor say, in a, after a conversation that we just had, it was actually at a, like a banquet, I think. He said, okay, let's pray. If we're not a praying people, he said, what are we? <laughs> yes, we should be devoted to prayer. That should be who we are. We should not just think prayerfully all the time, we should. <laughs> but we should actually stop and pray. Second, Paul says we should be watchful in prayer. Now, being watchful may make us think of keeping watch on a wall, perhaps. We stay alert, ready to cry out at any moment. In fact, the same watchfulness is how Jesus encouraged the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Watchful, especially in that context, literally means stay awake, but not merely awake, rather awake and ready to respond. In this case, ready to respond with prayer. As my friend said, we of all people should be quick to cry out to the Father. And then Paul, I think unexpectedly, connects this idea with thanksgiving. He says we should be thankful in prayer. Now, when I say it's unexpected, I don't mean that thanksgiving is something strange to bring up when talking about prayer. Not at all. Um, what I mean is, what is the relationship between watchfulness and thanksgiving? Are we supposed to keep our gratitude awake? Or are we supposed to let our gratitude keep us awake? It's a little bit perplexing to me. But Paul seems to be saying that prayer 
is an anchor point for our relationship to the Lord. And the thoroughgoing theme of our prayers should be thanksgiving. Listen to Colossians 2, 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He doesn't even say prayer here, but the meaning is clear. We should be overflowing with thanksgiving, with thankfulness to Christ. So I would say it like this. Be watchful that you are thankful. What? What are your motivations to pray? Yes, pray for wisdom and holiness and fruit and strength and patience. And no matter what you encounter, no matter what joys or what trials, be watchful that you are thankful. Next, Paul seems to have intended, I think, to continue with verse 5. But he's compelled to mention something in between, something before he goes on. He's talking about prayer, and he's going to talk about walking and, and speaking. But his mind compels him to mention verses 3 and 4. Pray also for us. Listen, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now, Paul regularly asks for prayer in his letters. Here he's calling the Colossians to do the very thing that he modeled in his letter. He was moved to pray for them at first, and now he's moved to request their prayers for him. What gives Paul this impulse, do you think? Well, I, I, I don't think that it can be numbers. As if his goal is to recruit more people to his prayer team in order to convince God to do something. In fact, I think Paul is asking for the very thing that he's already convinced God wants to do. His motivation is more relational and less calculating than that. For starters, I expect he's telling them what he has prayed for himself, that God would open a door and give him the words to speak. They've heard something of his prayers for them in this letter, and now he's letting them hear his prayers for himself and inviting them to join him. Paul sees prayer not as a formality, not as a legalistic duty, a responsibility, discipline, it is, but he sees it as a cooperation and a participation in his ministry. He's inviting the Colossians to be a part of his gospel mission, and the way for them to join him is in prayer. And so what does Paul ask for concerning his gospel mission? Concerning his ministry, he asks for opportunity and clarity. He asks for an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. This is actually Paul's fourth use of the word mystery in this letter. It is his way of referring to what has been revealed in the person and work of Christ. Listen to chapter one. He says, I became a minister to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, 
the hope of glory. Now, it's kind of hard to pin down what part of the, the message is the mystery, but I think it's kind of the whole thing. God's plan of salvation revealed in Christ. So Paul asks for prayer that he would be able to make known about Christ to others what God has already made known about Christ to him and the saints. So take a moment and observe the the mission priority of Paul's request. He is literally behind locked doors. And his desire is for the word, the message to be free. He doesn't pray for his freedom. He doesn't say, pray that I would get out of here. But for the freedom to be a witness. Being under arrest, Paul is in something of an awkward position to preach to unbelievers. So I think his, his request for prayer here is an indication of his approach in situations where he faces obstacles. He's surrounded by obstacles. He knows people still need to hear the gospel, so he asks for an open door to speak. But the request for an open door is not, in my mind, the more surprising request, actually. Consider what it means that Paul, let's see, the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, that he says in verse 1, chapter 1, the guy who would write Ephesians and Romans, for example, full of theological insight into the meaning and power of the gospel, that guy is asking the small-town Colossians to pray that he will speak the gospel with clarity. What? I think that's pretty stunning. I mean, of all people, Paul would be among the most knowledgeable of the mystery of Christ in the history of the church, in fact. He's the one who wrote many of the words that, in fact, make clear the gospel to us. 2,000 years later. So what does, it, what does it mean? Here's what I see. Paul's clarity in communication is different than his understanding of the message. Teachers know this, right? Being an expert doesn't mean that you're good at teaching others. This reminds me of an application of uh, Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Paul is not merely concerned with, with preaching, with speaking the gospel at people. He wants people to believe And so he wants them to hear. And so he must preach it in a way that they can understand. He's concerned that his audience would receive the gospel, not just that he would speak the gospel. So a couple of questions. Do you have this mission mindset? Is the gospel something for you to understand merely? Or are you eager, eager enough to pray it and to ask others to pray it, that you would speak the gospel clearly? Your personal ministry to outsiders begins with prayer. But also, how do we pray for our missionaries? We, we just did pray for missionaries. I assume that we pray, especially for those we have personal connections with, but what do we pray for them? I had a friend years ago who served as a missionary in, a, in what we could call a closed country, 
a place where he could be imprisoned for sharing his faith. Whenever he would share with churches, especially back in the States, um, he was always presented with questions concerning his personal safety. He's living in a dangerous place, right? Are you safe? I'll pray for your safety. He would get uh, assurance from his supporters that they would pray that he was kept safe, that God would keep him safe. And he would ask people to pray for his safety if they felt led, but pray instead for his fruitfulness. He didn't want to be safe. He wanted to be fruitful. You see, if my desire is for the gospel to reach new people, for the mystery of Christ to break through, I'll pray. I will pray for open doors for me. I will invite others to pray for those open doors. I will pray for their open doors too. So in calling the Colossians to be devoted to prayer, Paul reveals his own gospel focus in prayer. He commands prayer with thankfulness and invites the Colossians to join in his ministry through their prayers. He continues to challenge them, though, to let their Christian faith overflow in their own behavior and witness. And so he goes on, beginning with a call to walk in wisdom. Listen to Colossians 4, 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Walk here, of course, means more than just, you know, putting one foot in front of the other. Paul's talking about all of behavior. In fact, this is the same word that we just heard back in chapter 2, verse 6. As you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Live. In fact, you could argue that 2.6 was the beginning of this major section of the letter that concludes in 4.6 today. <clears throat> One of the arguments that Paul would see that his letter was broken up that way is that he uses the same command, walk, walk. And it becomes kind of a bookend for, for, the, for the passage. As for walking in wisdom, Paul has already mentioned wisdom specifically four times in this letter. Um, this is becoming something of a refrain. So many things are coming together at this, at this moment in the book. Um, so I keep saying, he's already mentioned this a bunch of times. He's already mentioned this a bunch of times. He's mentioned wisdom a bunch of times, four times already in the letter. It's something of his refrain throughout the letter. So back in chapter one, he prays for the Colossians to have wisdom. Also in chapter one, he identifies his warning and teaching with wisdom. That's what he does. He warns and teaches everyone with wisdom. And that connection comes back in chapter 3, verse 16, when Paul instructs the Colossians to teach and warn everyone, one another, in all wisdom as they let the word of Christ richly dwell within them. So I find it especially instructive that Paul's prayers for the Colossians and his, exam his example to the Colossians and his instructions to the Colossians, his calling on the, uh, on the Colossians, all agree. Now, in Paul's mind, all of this wisdom is found in Christ, which is exactly what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. He explains how he struggles in prayer for the Colossians and the Laodiceans, actually, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, there it is, which is Christ, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Wow, what a statement. All wisdom is found in Christ, and this is contrasted later in chapter 2 with man-made rules and teachings, 
which Paul says have an appearance of wisdom. Listen to verse 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So I think of it this way. Paul is warning and teaching them in this letter so that they will grow in their knowledge of the wisdom of Christ. That is the wisdom they should walk in. He's not talking about some general wisdom or something like street smarts. He's talking about the very wisdom that he's been sharing. Now, wisdom is not merely knowledge, but knowledge applied. And so wisdom is understanding how to put these standards and principles of the kingdom into effect in in our lives. So Paul makes it clear that this is going to take special insight because he continues his command to walk in wisdom with two qualifying phrases. He says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders first. I should point out that he assumes (laughs) that they and we are interacting with outsiders, that is, with unbelievers out there. I don't know of anyone here who promotes um, isolating ourselves from the world, but it would be pretty hard to draw that conclusion, I think, um, given verses like this. Here's, here's another example. There are many. Titus 2, 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a, good, uh, to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. God's people should represent him well. Our walk should not be an obstacle to faith. Hear me but should be an obstacle to unbelief. Is there any question that it will take wisdom for believers to be gospel-centered as they interact day-to-day with outsiders? And so all of a sudden, Paul's request for prayer as he seeks to reveal the mystery of Christ makes sense. It's a cry for wisdom. He has the knowledge. He wants to know how to apply it in his situation, in his very difficult situation. Again, he's not merely concerned with knowing the answers, but he wants to reveal the truth to a lost world. And so Paul adds this phrase, making the best use of time sometimes translated redeeming the time. If nothing else, the expression implies that time tends to be less than the best. And so we have to apply wisdom in order to redeem it. There's a parallel passage in Ephesians that makes this even more clear. Listen to 5.16. Making the best use of time Because the days are evil. (laughs) Redeeming the time has an urgency about it, even a boldness to it. You know how new believers have often a a boldness that, that tends to fade over time? Older believers, which in this room may have the upper hand, (laughs) tend to be wiser but often apply that wisdom in self-preservation. Come to think of it, this group may be more of the, I'm old so I don't care anymore variety, but that's beside the point. Either way, notice how the urgency to redeem the time is balanced by the patience of wisdom. Urgency is always with us. Wisdom tells us there's a time to speak 
and there's a time to listen. Wisdom tells us there's a time to push through and there's a time to let it pass. Remember Paul's instructions to set our minds on things above. As Paul continues chapter three, after that command, to, he says, put to death earthliness and put on Christlikeness. And these become sort of the path of wisdom through an evil world at an evil time. Remember for the Colossians, they would have heard the exhortations of chapter three moments before these final instructions in chapter four. Not weeks before or months before, or I should ask Doug where the date is in his Bible that I preached on the beginning of chapter three. All I will add to this is that redeeming the time means that now is the time to seek Christ. Now is the time to turn from selfishness. Now is the time to put on humility and love. And so Paul names one of the most significant ways to redeem the time, which is to speak, especially to speak with grace. Verse six, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so Paul's exhortations conclude with speaking. What you will note is the very thing that he asked the Colossians to pray for him, that he would speak well. Remember how I argued that continuous prayer can be understood as a flow throughout your whole life and conduct, but it would be sadly incomplete if we neglected actually talking to God? In a similar way, our Christian walk can be understood as the sum total of our behavior, walking in wisdom, but would nevertheless be sadly incomplete if we never put our gospel witness into words in front of outsiders. So both sections today conclude with the hope of speaking the gospel effectively. Paul asks for prayer in his, for his preaching, and then he calls the Colossians to speak graciously as they give answers to outsiders. Now, it's one thing to pray that someone else, say a missionary like Paul, will be able to communicate the gospel clearly. It is quite another to do the speaking ourselves. I mean, Paul knew all the answers already, right? I don't know all the answers. But as we take a closer look, the logic of verse six seems to be that speaking with grace and salt is a way that you will know how to answer. If we are worried about how to answer people, we need to be gracious. Now, does that seem backwards to you? It seems a little backwards to me. Don't you want to know the answer in order to answer people? <laughs> that makes sense. But isn't that typical of our modern mind? We want to have the right answer only. But we're not so concerned with how we deliver the answer. So Paul says, be gracious first. In other words, don't let yourself be provoked. Respond to evil with the same grace that has been shown to you. It has been revealed, so reveal it. You see, both the message and the manner of the messenger matter. But I have to wonder, in fact, if I'm ever really comfortable with that standard. The more I think about it, the more I realize that sometimes I'm happy to speak the truth. I relish the thought of dropping truth bombs, right? I want to win debates. I want to be a champion of the gospel, ignoring 
that I may leave behind a trail of embittered enemies who are just as set against the gospel as they were to begin with. I have won nothing. Other times, I'm much more content at being winsome and kind, a friend of everyone, while avoiding to mention those hard truths, while avoiding those difficult conversations, sidestepping them for the sake of my comfort, for me to seem properly nice. I'm, I'm either concerned about the message or about the manner of the messenger. How often am I concerned about both? How often do I speak grace with grace? To build on this, Paul says our speech should be seasoned with salt. Now, honestly, I'm undecided whether this is a reference to the message or the messenger. Uh, it seems natural to connect this with Jesus' own words in Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Therefore, in Colossians, I would take it to mean that if you have faith in Christ, everything you say should have a Christ-like quality about it. That doesn't mean that everything you say should somehow get around to the gospel. No, that would be unsustainable, I think. But the gospel affects everything. And everything you say, you say as an ambassador of the kingdom of God, whether you say the gospel or not. We are called to speak the truth. But we are called to be gracious messengers we must consider the audience. And so our hope is that you may know how to answer each person. We could think of this as it relates to being seasoned with salt. Seasoning implies a concern for the audience, right? It's like a well-seasoned word has been properly prepared, like a chef, you know, presenting a meal to a table of diners. In a similar way, we should be concerned with our presentation of the truth of the gospel. No, we shouldn't make it saccharine sweet, nor should we make it sour. I'm overplaying the metaphor, I think. But we could think of it this way. You can't make the gospel untrue, but you can make it sound ungracious. You can be ungracious. You can't make the gospel flavorless, but you can make your audience bitter. So answering each person, he says answer each person. It implies that each person has a question. And so I, I think it's, it's fair to say that we should be in the habit of recognizing the questions of the world in order to be prepared, seasoned, to deliver our message. Of course, there's good reason to expect that questions and attitudes will take a unique character from each person. But the idea is that we should be prepared so that we can speak to each person. Remember, passing on the gospel is at the heart of this letter. The gospel has been passed down to the Colossians. In fact, the gospel has been passed down to you and me. Imagine the train of witnesses. And so, may the grace we've been given fill our speech, and may we be empowered ourselves to answer outsiders. And finally, let me ask, do you even want to know how to answer each person? Do you want to make known the mystery of Christ? Do you want to speak it clearly to outsiders? If you do, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to pray 
for open doors. Pray for insight into people's questions. Invite others to pray the same. I would encourage you also to reread the letter to the Colossians. And I would especially challenge you to consider how it teaches us to walk in wisdom and teaches us how to speak the gospel even to the world. Consider how you speak to the world and pray for words of grace and truth. And in fact, if you don't care to share the gospel with friends and family and coworkers who don't yet believe, and yet you call yourself a follower of Christ, I would still invite you to pray. Don't give up on it. I'd invite you to pray to the Lord to change your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, may the prayers and warnings and teachings and instructions of this letter to the Colossians have their effect. May your grace towards us through your gospel fill us up and may we overflow in thankfulness when we pray, in wisdom when we walk, and in grace when we speak. And whatever sphere of life we may be tempted to withhold as if we can keep anything from you. May we be challenged, may we be changed in our very desires by your spirit. And so may we keep our minds set on Christ and may we grow up to maturity in Christ-likeness. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.